Welcome to MHD Off the Record. We're coming to you live from Morris Media Studios on Crenshaw and Lamert Park with veteran radio producer Felicia, the Poetess Morris, hosted by Marquise Harris Dawson, council member of the 8th District, but here, he's just MHD. On this podcast is where we talk about people, our history, culture, and activism. We talk about what matters and interesting people with big ideas. Enjoy the show. Welcome to MHD Off the Record. My name is Marquise Harris Dawson. I'm the council member for the 8th Council District. But today on the podcast, I'm just MHD. And I'm very proud and excited to be joined by uh, my good friend and uh, longtime ally, confidant, comrade, uh, the one and only Dr. Manuel Pastor of the University of Southern California, but also of the social justice movement here in Southern California and uh, in the the nation. So uh, good afternoon, Manuel. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm really glad to be here with you. It's, uh, It's so good to see you. I was trying to figure out and remember for the purposes of this discussion, because we talk all the time, um, how exactly did we meet? Well, uh, I think I have a story about that, which might be accurate, Mm -hmm. or maybe I'm just making it up to remember. Uh, But I do want to say that I think it's quite striking that that this is MHD off the record, but Mm -hmm. we're recording it. Yes. So uh, (laughs) there's an interesting set of contradictions here, which I probably embody your whole life, I'm sure, some kind of way. But what I seem to remember is one of the first times we met or really exchanged views was when you had just become executive director of Community Mm, Coalition. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was very interesting to go into your office and watch you sort of uh, both grow into the position and be fearful of, (laughs) oh, my God, what's coming my way. And I know you were trying to get a little bit of advice from me Uh uh, and a little bit of perspective. Um, I think that was maybe – what is your memory of our first You know, the first thing I can remember is a bus tour of South L.A. and – we were either co-moderating or we were just there and people were asking us questions. But I feel like I kind of knew you already because yeah. I didn't feel like you were unfamiliar to me. But it was just I just remember feeling a really good vibe between like politics, like the good mix of politics and science. Like you had really good hard data. Uh, and sometimes I'd say something and you'd be like, well, yeah. And the census numbers say this, this and this. Yeah. And then you'd say something and I'd be like, yeah. And here's an anecdote that supports that point of view. That, I remember that. But I think we might have already known each other by that point. Yeah, we might have met before, but I remember that tour now, tour as well. Because what was fascinating about it was that, you know, the history of South L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, has not been well written. That's right. I mean, there are some books, but a lot of it is what people tell each other mm-hmm. about where they grew up, the communities they grew up in, uh, the organizing that took place. And I was struck by how much you knew. Mm-hmm. And I think you were struck by the fact that this Latino yeah. who did not grow up in South L.A. Right. actually knew a lot of the history that has not been written, mm-hmm. has just been passed on by people talking to one another. And then we must admit that one of the things that eventually got us uh to be good friends was recognizing that both of us lift weights. That's right. And we needed to find somebody to lift weights with. That's right. And uh, I've been, we've been doing this now for, I think, about 12 years. And i got to share with your audience, it's wonderful to lift weights with Marquise, not just because he's trying to be buff and all that good stuff, but what <laughs> great gossip you bring from yes, City Hall. That's right. That right. I'm sworn to silence about. <laughs> I 
apparently that is really off the record. <laughs> yes, it is off the record. All the tea over our, over our workouts, especially when they're either early in the morning or late at night when my filters are down, we get to get to hear all of it. Um, you know, you're so right about the, the history of South L.A. I do remember being struck uh, by your knowledge because you're right. Not a lot of people had knowledge. And now we come full circle, I don't know, 15 years later, 12 years later, and now you actually have a book that's been published about the history of South LA. Can you talk some about the book, your inspiration, and, and uh, what you the exciting parts you find out about? Well, what a hard question to ask an academic <laughs> to talk about their brand new book. Um, so yeah, we just published this book in New York University Press, South Central Dreams, Finding a Home and Building Community in South LA. And the sort of headline that prompted it uh, was the fact that South Los Angeles writ large, unincorporated territories, as well as the parts that are in the city of Los Angeles, has gone from about being about 80% African American in 1970, and about half of black Los Angeles of the county mm -hmm. lived in South LA in 1970. Now uh, it's about two-thirds Latino, mm -hmm. and only about a quarter of black Angelinos live in South LA real big uh, disbursement. And what was interesting was that when that change, there, there's always been Latinos in South LA. Mm -hmm. I hear you. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, there was really a big growth in the 80s and in the 90s, particularly as the Mexican uh, debt crisis, Central American crises, got people to uh, come to Los Angeles and then move to South LA as well. And, you know, essentially a lot of uh, both journalists and academics focused in on the period of conflict and tension mm -hmm. as people were moving in. That's right. They didn't come back 25 years later and ask what kind of transformations have taken place, mm -hmm. how have people learned to live with one another on a daily basis, and what's the sort of black-brown organizing that's emerged in Los Angeles, uh, in South LA, and is really kind of an example for the rest of the nation. So we wanted to take a look at this, but I think you know we were sort of asked to take a look at it. Mm. That is the community-based organizations, CD Tech, Community Coalition, and so many others wanted to make sure that people came back and looked at that story of transformation and also did not tell it as a sort of Latino triumphalist story. Mm -hmm. Latinos are here, mm -hmm. oh my God, you know, now there's gonna be a big political transformation but rather to understand that what is happening in South Los Angeles is African-Americans and Latinos learning to form coalitions, learning to uh, take the important roots in racial identity, but also think about spatial identity, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. shared uh, common fate of being in South LA. So part of the reason why we wrote this book was to celebrate what's going on here, and part of it was to head it off at the pass. Other kinds of stories yeah. that might have been told just by looking at that data, because there's been so many stories focused in on the conflict, where people haven't been on the ground looking at the accommodation, and there's such a desire sometimes to tell the Latino story without also centering the struggle against anti-black racism, mm -hmm. which remains central, not just to African-Americans in South LA, but also to Latino identity in South LA. Mm -hmm. One of the things that comes out, uh, you know, ask an academic a simple question, you get a long <laughs> answer. Uh, one of the things that comes out in the book is that Latinos in South LA are very different than Latinos in other parts of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. They're much more likely to have black friends, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes black family members and mm -hmm, black mm -hmm. uh, loves, 
people that they grew up with and went to school with, and they're much more likely to think about race, anti-black racism, and how it sets the contours for Latinos as well. And it's fascinating. They actually like very different music, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, it, yeah. you know, they hear a ranchetta, and they're like, yeah, that's my dad's music. Right, right, right. But, right. man, hip-hop, yeah. that's where I'm at, right? Yeah, yeah. And they also, when they interact with Latinos in East L.A., are like, dude, why are you so racist? Mm-hmm. You really have to challenge that, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I think that that is why we call it finding home and building community. And, you know, African-Americans found home in South L.A., but so did Latinos mm-hmm. over the last 25 years. And how have they found commonality and community and built community through organizing together? Excellent. So you used a big word that I only know because I was able to ask you what it meant on the treadmill. Um, <laughs> Latino triumphalism. Uh, can you say more about what that is? I think I know what it means. A lot of times stories, especially in the U.S. context, get cast as us versus them or Goliath versus David and only one of them can survive and uh, and have triumph. You know, the typical story in the academic literature, and I think it resonates with people on the ground, is that assimilation or integration means assimilating to the white mainstream mm-hmm. and that the way that neighborhoods change is through ethnic succession that a group comes in and basically takes over territory from another group. Mm -hmm. What we find in South LA is Latinos, in some sense, integrating into blackness, Mm -hmm. understanding the black experience in the United States, understanding that the racism that led to deindustrialization and the neglect of public infrastructure and public education in South LA, that's also affecting Latinos who moved into this territory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And similarly, that it's not a question of one group uh, succeeding over one another, Mm -hmm. but how do you think about ethnic sedimentation? How do you build on the great organizing Mm -hmm. and political infrastructure that's been put in place by black leadership Mm -hmm. here in South LA and build a kind of new black-brown paradigm that is really a paradigm for organizing not just in South LA, but you know, in our major metropolitan areas, the two uh, populations that are coming into the closest proximity mm-hmm. and done their yeah. daily lives yeah. are African Americans and Latinos. Yeah. And so what happens in South LA definitely should not stay in South LA. Mm-hmm. It's a model for the rest of the country. And this triumphalism is our numbers are bigger. We are going to uh, not succeed together, but succeed over someone else. And that's just something I fundamentally reject, both as part of my own politics, Mm -hmm. part of my own history. I've been for the last 30 years trying to work on how do we build ties between African-Americans, Latinos, and Asian American Mm -hmm. and Pacific Islanders. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I reject the idea of triumphalism. And it doesn't show up in the data either. Right, right. That's, uh, I thank you for that explanation. I, I, you know, in, in, and I uh, promised you smaller words. Yeah, going there, forward. there you go. Um, no, I, I remember hearing that term, and I remember thinking about community members when we'd be at a community meeting or a meeting with parents, and Latino parents would say in Spanish, "I understand now that this school is being treated poorly because it's a school for black kids, but it's not like it gets better when I show up." Like, it's not like that goes away because I'm not black. The school suddenly becomes good. I suffer the same consequences of this system. So I hate the system and I want to fight against it. 
Yeah, and that becomes the kind of crucial political work that we yeah. need to do in our own communities, right? Yeah. So I know that in the spaces that I'm in with immigrants, mm -hmm. particularly immigrant Latinos, I'm trying to raise up the central question of anti-black racism and how mm -hmm. it sets the contours mm -hmm. for the othering, the xenophobia that affects immigrant Latinos. Mm -hmm. And similarly, uh, in black spaces, I think, you know, I always think of that wonderful book, The Warmth of Other Suns, yes, right? Yes, Where about every 50 pages, the author goes, hey, this is a lot like immigrants today, <laughs> right, isn't it? Exactly, right? exactly. So what are the ties between the great yeah. migration yeah. and the transformation of space in South LA? You know, it wasn't always black space, right? Right, right, And right, so right, right. how do we make it black, brown right. space and, and really a space of justice? And how might the country be different if when black folks integrated and took up a social justice struggle, if the white communities didn't run, if they, if working class whites had joined up with that struggle, and uh, and pushed the country forward. So, uh, you know, you you talk about the context of South LA, the integration of Latino communities, you know, Mexican American, Central American, into a context of struggle, a context of struggle against the status quo, against the, uh, against racism, against anti-black racism in particular, but also just the oppression of poor people. Uh, more more broadly, and part of the story of, of black folks, which you document in your book, has been a fight for space and a fight for representation. Yeah. And then, and so there was a generation where the fight was just, you know, get someone black in the door, right? And then once that had happened, it was get someone black in the door who's to the left, right? Yeah. And now the the struggle is get someone uh, uh, who's black or Latino into the door who's uh, on the left who is a coalition builder. So the, yeah. the list of things keeps kind of growing. Uh, can you talk some about what you've observed, uh, both in the present context that we have of, we have lots of progressive, exciting, you know, former organizers, um, uh, really competing for every level of public office coming out of out of South LA, from the vice presidency of the United States to council and mayor and U.S. Senate and all the rest of it. Um, can you talk some about what that's meant and in terms of policy and the quality of life for for Latinos and African Americans in Southern California? Well, I think one of the there's a couple of challenges in there. One is you're right. The challenges of leadership have become much more complex. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not just a question of identity, mm -hmm. but a question of interests and intersections, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to figure out what the interests of a place like South Los Angeles or East LA or wherever, mm -hmm. and then trying to build intersections both within communities and across communities. You know, I uh, always remember that the only favor you really asked me for when you were executive director of Community Coalition was to work with inner city struggle. Yeah. So yeah, that yeah. there would be a strong base mm -hmm. in East LA around educational equity mm -hmm. so there could be a citywide campaign mm -hmm. to make sure that college prep courses would get mm -hmm. into the public schools impacting black and Latino kids mm -hmm. citywide, mm -hmm. including in South LA. So the demands for leadership are higher than ever. The skills that people need are higher than ever. And one thing that's really heartening is to see people taking the time to do the training around those skills, mm -hmm. around bridge building, and essentially community organizing, meeting electoral politics in ways, for example, that just saved Gavin Newsom's, can I say ass? Yes. Uh, can I yes. say ass? Okay. Yeah. Then the other thing I think that we're lagging on is the public policy agenda. Mm -hmm. People are getting in the door with the right kind of skills, but do we really have a public policy agenda? We need to be much more aggressive 
on tackling the questions of homelessness. We need to be much more aggressive at job development that actually reaches people in poor communities. It's great to raise the minimum wage. How do we make sure that it's enforced? And how do we make sure that small businesses can adjust to it so that they don't go out of business, mm -hmm. particularly those small black and Latino-owned businesses mm -hmm. that might be a little bit more at the margin? Mm -hmm. And I actually think that this is really the next frontier, is how do we put together all of the great research that people are doing in the academy, all of the great thinking that's going on in the community, all of the great activism, and wed a public policy agenda to these political skills and political victories. Thank you for that. I think that's, I think you're right on, and that's what's exciting about the future. So what we found is that the social justice movement can actually win elections, but then the question is after you win elections, what happens, right? And so even with our governor, uh, we were able to, to really help deliver a victory to the governor, but that victory didn't come with, okay, here are the 15 things uh, that we need to do. And so I'm excited about what that's going uh, to mean going forward. You know, I'm a history buff and, uh, you know, historically it's, you know, it's a pleasure to watch you work. When I watch you work, I really think of W.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington and and all of the, the way, it, it, and I, I cast you in those lights because there was a way in which academics purposely position their work with activism and politics. And I watch you, uh, I watch you kind of do that. So how do you think about that work and, and sort of what's your, what's your best story uh, about how that's worked? Like what piece of work did you have where you go, that hit the bullseye? There's a bunch really, but boy, that comparison, you know what, I'm teaching an urban sociology graduate course now, and I always bring in W. Du Bois at the beginning and bring in some of the books some of you might have seen of the maps he did, mm -hmm. of the charts he did, mm. trying to uh, document black life at the turn of the century. He was such an important political figure that mm -hmm. people forget what a brilliant sociologist he was. Yeah, yeah. That many of the techniques that we're still using in terms of quantifying the conditions of communities, mm -hmm. diagramming them, understanding the complexities of communities, mm -hmm. we owe so much to him. So, damn, thank you for that comparison. Uh, you know, it is a lane that I try to be in. And I would say that, you know, a couple of things that I would lift up that I'm really proud of. One is that we helped develop an environmental justice mapping tool mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. became the precursor for Cal EnviroScreen, yeah. which is the uh, mapping tool that the state uses that now is used to allocate resources from cap and trade. 35% uh, of them are mandated to go to communities that are overexposed to pollution and socially vulnerable, usually black and Latino. My district is getting some parks because of that, yeah. So uh, really, uh, uh, that feels like a really important thing. You know, last year during the pandemic, I mean, we directly fed to you where you were on the floor of the uh, city uh, council debating this uh, information on how many mixed status families there were mm -hmm. in South Los Angeles mm -hmm. and why dealing with the issue of making sure that undocumented Angelinos could actually get some assistance from the city was crucial to the economic and social health mm -hmm. of a place like South LA, mm -hmm. which people might not think right. has as many undocumented residents as it, as it does. And we were actually also able to feed that to the governor. And it's not the only reason that $75 million got devoted 
to uh, disaster assistance for mm -hmm. undocumented folks or that undocumented folks get included in some of the rent assistance. Right, right. But all that stuff helps. Mm -hmm. One of the th our slogans that our research center has, uh, the Equity Research Institute, is data and analysis to power social change. And one of the things we recognize, and I really want to be super clear about, is we don't change the world. We work with people who change the world. Mm -hmm. But when we can take that really good data and get it in the hands of environmental justice or social justice or economic justice groups, they can use it mm -hmm. to power social change. Mm -hmm. So we're there to help. Excellent, excellent. That's that's exciting work. I want to move now uh, to one of the the interesting and fascinating things about you that audiences I think all over the country end up hearing and that is your love for for popular music hip-hop music but especially Kendrick Lamar uh, you know I people hear you quote Kendrick Lamar and not just the hit songs you quote some of the deep 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 cuts uh, that not everybody knows uh, how'd you discover Kendrick and and what spoke to you um, so clearly and and what resonated with you so much you know I can't quite remember how I discovered Kendrick, but I know that soon after discovering Kendrick, my uh, depth of understanding of him got better mm -hmm. as a result of chatting with you <laughs> about it all the time. Um, you know, one of the things to hope the audience knows, maybe they don't, is uh, this guy has a nearly Questlove uh, level uh, <laughs> knowledge of music. It's pretty encyclopedic. But, you know, from Good Kid, I know there was a mixtape before mm -hmm. and I should have been paying more attention to it. But from Good Kid, Mad City, talking about the being caught between the red and the blue, mm -hmm. caught between being between the Bloods and the Crips, but also caught between the red and the blue of the police lights, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. understanding what it means to be growing up in South Los Angeles, torn between the pressures of gang life and also torn between the over-policing that mm -hmm. over-criminalizes so many folks, to a song like I, which talks about uh, how many times uh, the city making me promises, how many times my potential was anonymous, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I promise this, I love myself. Mm -hmm. That sort of self-affirmation. Mm -hmm. Or, damn, be humble, mm -hmm. which is something all of us need to remember, <laughs> right? Um, I just think that when you stumble upon someone who's not just a brilliant uh, on the musical side, mm -hmm. but a brilliant lyricist. I always call Kendrick sort of our poet laureate of the United States and certainly of Los Angeles. It's no surprise to me that he won a Pulitzer yeah. Prize uh, for really his poetry. So I think he's pretty amazing. Uh, one person who I have just, you know, mad love for mm -hmm. is Anderson Pack. Mm -hmm. The song Lockdown yes. over this summer yes. uh, really captured the spirit of the protests uh, and also just kind of captured what people needed to be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, I love music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, he, he, at Manuel Bird's best store actually uh, really loves music and produced uh, a beautiful son and daughter. And the son is actually a musician uh, who has a, a band called James Supercave. Yes, I'm giving a plug. My favorite song is Old Robot. So just make sure he knows that I did that. <laughs> I will let him know. And, you know, I will say that also about this book, we've created a, a website called South Central Dreams yes. com. And this is maybe the only academic book that comes with its own hip hop video. Oh, wow. Uh, which is also on the website. Uh, and it's fantastic. Uh, and the only 
kind of frustrating thing about this video is you realize that in two minutes, this rapper said everything we took 280 pages to say. <laughs> uh, and so watch the video, yeah. but please go ahead and buy the book. The 280 pages are worth it. All right. Uh, so Dr. Pastor is, you know, one of the country's most sought after speakers. I feel like I've heard you speak in like a dozen cities around the country. Um, in addition to hearing you speak a lot here, you have some quotes that stuck with me and I think stick with others. One of them is people must be impatient about justice and patient about strategy. Another one is uh, there are decades in which nothing happens and there are years in which decades happen. I remember you said that a lot last summer during the George Floyd uh, protest. Uh, can you talk to us about those quotes and, and why they come back for you so often? Yeah, I'll do them in reverse order. The first is actually a quote from Vladimir Lenin. Mm -hmm. That's not always popular to quote yeah. him, but, uh, you know, it, I could pretend it was John Lennon and maybe people <laughs> yeah. think it's okay. Yeah. Uh, Who's Vladimir Lenin? But <laughs> exactly. There are decades in which nothing happens. There's years in which decades happen. And, you know, sometimes history is moving along quite slowly. Mm -hmm. And other times there's a moment that you need to seize. Mm -hmm. uh, the COVID crisis was the illness the, the disease that revealed our illnesses as a society, mm -hmm. racial wealth gap, uh, the fragility of employment, and so much else, the digital divide. And so it was a moment to work hard on social transformations. And certainly the protests after George Floyd's murder was something that made so many people that didn't think about police brutality, mm -hmm. race and racist policing, recognize that it was there and recognize that they needed to do something about it. And so when you see those moments, you really need to seize them because decades are happening. Mm -hmm. Change is really potentially fundamental in that moment. And that gets to that first quote. I think that people need to be impatient about injustice. When you see injustice, you need to say, we cannot tolerate this, we need to change this. But we also need to be patient about strategy. Um, you know, my other kind of favorite quote is in the wake of the LA civil unrest or uprising of 1992, many of us were running from meeting to meeting, mm -hmm. thinking if we went to one more meeting, we'd actually solve something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That still happens. <laughs> yeah. uh, and in the middle of one of those one meetings, more Zoom. <laughs> exactly, in the middle of one of those meetings, an activist leaned back and said, you know, there's an immediate need to think long term. Mm -hmm. And in that room were the people who came up with the living wage campaign, mm -hmm. were the people who came up with community benefits, mm -hmm. were the people who said, we need to work on black brown organizing. Mm -hmm. That is, that stuff takes years mm -hmm. if you really lay out a strategy. Mm -hmm. I know that the moment is now to deal with policing. I know that we need to take advantage of it, mm -hmm. but I also need it's gonna know it's gonna take a decade to really lead to transformational change, and we need to think about the steps along the way. Nice, nice. Great. So now it's my time <laughs> yeah. to be the yeah. interviewer. Yeah. I've got a couple of things which are in the script and then a few things to maybe throw you off. But um, what are you working on right now that you're excited about and you really want your district uh, constituents to know about? Well, you know, I'm really excited about the moment that we're in. Uh, when I ran for city council, I actually didn't think there was much we were going to be able to do around the relationship between the police and the community. Last summer, George Floyd opened that up. And so we're working on a policy now to basically end the, the infamous random stop, police stop. Uh, we want to end stops for things like broken taillights and cracked windshields and 
other auspicious reasons or ostensible reasons that the police pull you over. And then those things can go south really, really quickly. We want to say if the police are interacting with people, it ought to be because they think you're a threat to public safety and they can demonstrate uh, why they have that uh, opinion. So very, very excited about that. We're right now here on Mor at Morris Studios on Crenshaw Boulevard. Very excited about Destination Crenshaw as the, the Metro line comes barreling down uh, Crenshaw. A lot of times the impact of rail investment, light rail investment in Southern California can mean turning the spigot on for gentrification. And we want to turn, turn this investment into an opportunity for placekeeping and really making sure that this stays, Crenshaw stays the spine of the most important African-American community anywhere on the West Coast. And so that'll be uh, an outdoor open air people's museum uh, celebrating the story of, of the black freedom struggle in Southern California and, and on the West Coast. And so we're excited about it. We just signed Kehinde Wiley and a host of other artists. Uh, we're gonna have uh, one of LA's only monument statues uh, it will be a black woman with, on a horse with a sword facing the Hollywood Hills, uh, declaring uh, the day of justice in this city. So we're excited about that. And, and uh, it's nice to be in a time when you can imagine uh, a future uh, that looks nothing like what we see today. She might be calling for more representation in Hollywood, too. That <laughs> yes, sword yes. will uh, <laughs> help along. Um, how are those plans going? I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating to me is the black creative renaissance yes. that's happened here in Los Angeles. I yeah. mean, it is, you know, when you've got a, you know, when you're producing a Terrace Martin and a Kendrick Lamar and a Kamasi Washington mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and a Anderson Pack, damn, you know? Right, right. And that's just music, right? Yeah. We can move to film yeah. and TV uh, with Issa Rae and Avery DuVernay and so many others. What are the plans in Destination Crenshaw to not have it just be a, a monument mm -hmm. to the creativity, but to really be a place where black creatives can come and forge new entertainment, new statements about the culture? Yeah. You know, that's a, a very good question. I appreciate it for you. And, and that I have to say is, is really a vision that is not mine. That really is the vision principally of the late great Nipsey Hussle. You know, Nipsey Hussle was very good at articulating like, hey, wait a minute, like we create value in this community, but I have to leave my community to record a record. I have to leave my community to have a performance. I've got to leave my community to even sell the sneakers that I made popular because I saw the people around here wearing them. And so how can we change the landscape so that the value that's created by our community uh, gets realized in the communities where it's created. And so, you know, it's a, very, it's a very exciting time. Destination Crenshaw is really meant to be a platform and then people respond to it. And so you see the responses. So Issa Rae has located a studio, a recording studio and a soundstage right along the Destination Crenshaw area. Other artists are looking at uh, recording space. Artists are looking at galleries. Uh, folks are looking at doing museums. All of these things are spontaneous, separate from the formal destination Crenshaw area. But what we wanted to do was lay the landscape and say, we're declaring that this is the space and we're gonna stop this business that we have to leave here. You know, Mark Bradford has to leave here and put up his painting at LACMA yeah. on La Cienega in Wilshire when he's from here. Um, and we should be able to see his paintings here. And so that's really what Destination Crenshaw does. And we think there's a long demonstrated history that the world consumes African-American culture and, and really black culture is in a renaissance. L.A. Yeah. is really the capital of that right now. Yeah. Um, we know that it gets consumed. We know that people pay for it. We want to make that the backbone of our economy here. 
I think another challenge in that, I'll move to another question, is going to be making sure that there's affordable housing nearby. Yes, yes. So that, I mean, folks who are already here can stay, but also that it's creative cluster, right? Mm -hmm. That there's a place for, I don't know, people like my musician son, son yeah. whose uh, <laughs> income levels are not uh, extraordinary. Uh, anyway, let me... Uh, let me, uh, uh, he sees a bit of a hobby of mine in terms of subsidy. Uh, yeah. But uh, I'm planning on uh, taking, you'll make sure that your constituents uh, hear this podcast, maybe watch the video. I'm hoping that my students do mm -hmm. too. And what kind of research is research that's useful to you and the work that you're doing, useful to progressives who wind up not just winning power, yeah. but wielding power, right? Yeah. And need to know about policy. Well, you know, I think the the there's lots of it. Uh, you know, I, I'll remember that day I was in my backyard. We were on a, a break from Zoom and we were debating around what the rental assistant po assistance policy was going to be and what the sick leave policy was going to be for the city. And we were getting some federal money. Trump was still in office. And there was a question that the bureaucrats were just kind of, eh, I don't know what the answer is. And I was able to just draw the line. I was like, look, I have 30% undocumented workers in my district. And I only knew that because I was able to pick up the phone and call you. And I knew you had that body of data at your fingertips and someone on your team could figure out what that was. And I said, you know, and I don't have the most, I don't have the most immigrants in my district. There are other districts with more immigrants than mine. And I got 30%. So I'm not voting for anything where these workers aren't uh, included. And so that makes a concrete difference in the moment. But over the long term, the, you know, since I've been in office, the, the work that you've done that has been the most impactful is the work around rent burden yeah. and just how people, how close people are to homelessness. And frankly, I think I always tell people if they examine your rent burden work, they'll understand the flow of homelessness because it just it tells you like. This set of the population is always within six weeks of being homeless. And uh, I think, you know, to the extent that that work has been taken up and it, frankly, it's never been challenged like most of your work isn't. Um, I think that helps us shape policy. So that's very important for, I think, people to uh, listen to, because I think also when people bemoan the lack of progress on home plan housed in mm -hmm. Los Angeles, forget how much the spigot yep. is flowing new people in. Yeah, and by rent burden, we mean the amount of a person's income that they're paying for rent. And so if their income is interrupted in any slight way, they dip below the place that they can make rent, which yeah. a lot of times renders people homeless. So really key, important question. Mm -hmm. What should I be listening to these days? You know, What's exciting you? You know, uh, I'm really, this is a great year for hip hop. Uh, we have the Donda album by Kanye West. We have... Um, the Drake album, and you know, Drake's just kind of a monster of popular music at this point in history. You know, my favorite, we have a new Nas record this year. Um, I think Meg The Stallion is uh, amazing in putting out new music. Uh, my favorite record this year so far is Call Me If You Get Lost uh, by the Tyler The Creator. I think it is the maturation of Tyler The Creator as a hip hop artist, because you know, Tyler The Creator is a singer, he's a, a visual artist, he's a, he's a performance artist, but as a rapper, this album is just amazing uh, to me. He, you know, takes the styles all the way from the 80s well into the 2000s. He mimics them and tells his own stories about them. He's also taken hip hop to an entirely new place where he can talk openly in a masculine way about being bisexual, yeah. which is just 
you know, if two years ago, if you if you said to somebody, can this be done? People would be like, oh, you're out of your mind. Like the hip hop is the a cesspool of machismo yeah. and misogyny. There's no way anybody can do that and get away with it. And here he puts out this record and it's arguably, arguably the best record of this year and probably of the last few years. Well, you're actually making me feel pretty good about myself because that's what I was listening to on the way to the studio. <laughs> yes, there you Just go. There you go. There you go. And you didn't get lost. So. <laughs> so, so there you go. And Tyler's another one that's from this community, but he's so global he doesn't get identified from LA. He's actually from you know this very neighborhood that we're in uh, now and is a part of that cohort of young people that were in high school and middle school in the late 90s, early 2000s that are now coming into their own. Okay. Uh, we're moving into our, our less verbose sets of answers because uh, you and I can both go on for a while. Uh, quick answers to uh, very weighty questions. Uh, is there a political trend that excites you? I'm excited about the way that people are starting to think about uh, the economy in a way that will be more equitable and more inclusive and promote prosperity. Neoliberalism is dead. Excellent. Tell us something that is true that almost no one agrees with you on. I'm about to get myself in trouble. Um, I really do not like mariachi music. I know I'm supposed to. Oh, my gosh. And uh, almost almost no one agrees with me who's Latino on that. I hope we have a a siren uh, sound effect. Lo siento, mi gente. Lo siento. (laughs) Um, And then uh, you're a noted author. What is one book that you recommend uh, our listeners read and why, besides one of your own. Oh, damn. Man, that's, uh, <laughs> that's shortening me out right now. Um, I'll pass on that question. Wow. I would just recommend my book. Okay, that's easy enough. <laughs> South Central Dreams. This could be the start of something big. Uh, okay, so a uh, quick lightning round. Uh, your favorite movie that features South L.A.? Uh, Boys in the Hood. Nice. It's Fa- a, you know, U.S. secret. That's right. John Singleton, you're, that's correct. Uh, we saw John Singleton once at the gym uh, when we were working out at USC, I, re- I will remember. He was looking better than us, yeah. Yes, he was. Uh, favorite station to listen to while stuck in traffic? Uh, I like to not listen to the radio and instead just play a little Tyler the Creator. Nice. Good call. Uh, favorite South LA restaurant? Depends. Uh, want some Latino food? Mm-hmm. Chichen Itza. Mm. Uh, planning on a big workout? Uh, Harold and Bell, mm-hmm. uh, because need some yeah. time to work yeah. that balance off. and post and beam shout out that's healthy good stuff yes very very good stuff um so it's it's been a real pleasure to have this conversation with you i get the benefit of this conversation all the time one of the things about south la that's uh, amazing and los angeles in general but especially south la is we have folks that are amazing excellent brilliant doing the work every day and uh you're certainly in that category of people you're there at usc doing amazing research, producing amazing books with an amazing analysis that, you know, the mainstream media just sort of doesn't even recognize that's out there uh, because they, you know, they like the glitz and the conflict and, and, and all the rest. Um, and so given what you've done and what you've seen and the community that you've been a part of, uh, what do you think is next? What's on the, what's the next frontier for us? Well, I was really struck today reading the LA Times. There was a column by Jean Guerrero, mm-hmm. who actually talked about the secret of the victory uh, for Newsom yeah, not getting recalled. Yeah, yeah. And for the first time, she's not a political uh, analyst, so instead, she didn't make the mistake most political analysts do, mm-hmm. which is just paying attention to the politicians. Yeah. And she paid attention to the on-the-ground organizing, yes, yes. that the Million Voters Project, mm-hmm. Chirla, uh, so many others uh, who turned out 
uh, you know, votes uh, to reject uh, the recall. And this uh, issue in which, or this kind of phenomena in which community organizing is meeting electoral politics, mm -hmm. that's what elected you. Yes, that uh, is that is your you're so right. It is why you know who holds you accountable yeah. on a level and helps you stay honest and actually also can deliver power right. when you need to make change. Backbone. And I am absolutely excited about scaling that phenomena up to a statewide level and then making sure that we scale it up to a national level mm -hmm. because we cannot have another Trump and we also need to move past the relative timidity that we're seeing at a national level and take bold action to transform the United States to a place of justice. There, he said it, <laughs> said it all. Uh, thank you everybody for joining us for this conversation on what makes effective public policy uh, an absolute superstar to the social justice movement, to the academic world, to politics, to uh, everything uh, that it means to be a freedom fighter uh, in this day and this time. Our own uh, professor, Dr. Manuel Pastor. Thank you very much. And I just really remember uh, Kendrick's words, be humble. Yes, be humble. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this conversation on what makes effective public policy. Special thank you to Morris Media Studios for hosting our podcast. For more information, please visit mhdcd8.com and follow at mhdcd8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate us five stars, and share with a friend. If you rate us four stars, you're a hater.